Well, good evening once again. Today we're going to finish up our short series through the prophet Elijah's ministry. While there's more scriptures about Elijah's life than we will address, 1 Kings 17 through 19 are commonly referred to as the Elijah narrative. So as you may have guessed from that, we will be looking at the last chapter of that narrative, chapter 19, uh, specifically verses 1 through 21. Now I'll be reading out of the New King James Version this evening. Um, so now let us all look together at 1 Kings 19, 1 through 21, and pay attention, for this is the word of God. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life, and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank. And he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, Vavel Mahalah, 
you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he was with the 12th. Then Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? So Elisha turned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment and gave it to the people. And they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's now pray for his help. O Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scripture has just been read, your word is about to be proclaimed, we may hear it with joy and rejoice in what you have said to us tonight. Amen. Well, today we will see the Lord's prophet in despair. Despair. What a distasteful word. I wish it were the kind of word that you only read in fiction, but never encountered in real life, like a hobbit or a dementor. But some of you here today can testify that despair is far more real than Tolkien's best description of those small hole dwellers. In fact, some of you have been knocked over by despair's tile waves, deprived of any reason to swim up for air. As one poet so powerfully put it, losing your life is not the worst thing that can happen. The worst thing is losing your reason for living. That is despair. Losing your reason for living And despair was a far greater opponent than the 450 prophets of Baal or the three years of drought because Elijah nearly lost this battle. But in 1 Kings 19, we don't just see a man in despair. We also see the Lord's antidote for despair, his unfailing word. So let us consider together this last story in our Elijah narrative, looking together at the great highs and lows, for it takes us as low as the human spirit can go, and it brings us all the way up to Mount Sinai, beholding the glory of the Lord. But before we take in the highs and lows, we must first notice that the author of 1 Kings 19 carefully wrote this chapter with Moses' life in the back of his mind, though we will see their stories are vastly different. By the time we get to 1 Kings 19, Elijah has already gone into the courts of Pharaoh, so to speak, 
putting the court magicians to shame by showing that Yahweh, not Baal, is the only true God. He then intercedes on behalf of Pharaoh to stop one of Yahweh's plagues, drought. Now let us consider the rest of the Elijah Moses story under the headings The Wrath of Pharaoh, The Wilderness Retreat, The Word of the Lord at Sinai, and The Work of God Continues in Israel. Let us begin with the wrath of Pharaoh in verses 1 through 2. Well, in verse 1, we are told that Ahab returned to Jezebel and told her all that Elijah had done, how he executed all of the prophets with a sword. Now, the repetition of that word all is not accidental. Ahab told her everything, how Elijah had prayed for the drought, how he had exposed Baal to be a figment of their imagination, how he had killed all of their prophets, how he had turned the whole nation back to Yahweh, and how he had brought back the rain as a sign of covenant renewal. Surely, after all of this, Queen Jezebel will bow her knee to the Lord, right? Well, here's the crazy part of the story. She digs her feet in deeper into Baal worship. She vows to kill Elijah by this time tomorrow, or may the gods kill her. Now this should baffle our minds. Baal has been exposed as a fake, and yet that only strengthens her resolve to worship him and to eliminate all of the Yahwehists. Well, how do we account for this strange response? Well, first, it is very revealing on a psychological front. Now, to be honest, I have seen many of you act in a very similar way. Take, for instance, the COVID vaccine. Now, in this church body, we have very different opinions represented on this issue. But I have seen some of you on both sides of the issue, mind you, come across contradictory information to what you believe, and yet it only deepens your commitment. Jezebel just did what you and I do all the time. She dug her feet down deeper, clinging to her preconceived ideas. She hardened her heart. Well, that's on a psychological level, but we can dig down deeper and ask, well, what's happening on a spiritual level? Well, she hardened her heart, but as the case with Pharaoh, God also hardened her heart. He gave her over to her wickedness and her lies. She was not thinking straight. She had been given over to her delusion. And this delusion expressed itself as wrath towards Elijah. It reminds us of the wrath of Pharaoh. Even after Moses released plagues and stopped them, Pharaoh's wrath was kindled against him, and he sought to kill him, even chasing him to the Red Sea. And this is Elijah's story as well. He prayed for God's plague to end, and now Jezebel is angrier than ever seeking to kill him. Well, we have seen Pharaoh's wrath. Now let us look together at the wilderness retreat in verses 3 through 8. 
Verse 3 starts by saying, And when Elijah saw that, he arose and ran for his life. Now some of your translations may say, Then he was afraid. The reason for this difference is because in Hebrew, the verbs to be afraid and to see are spelt the same in this context. Therefore, some translations will say to see, while other translations will say to be afraid. I chose to read out of the New King James Version because it uses the verb to see, which I think is actually the better reading in this context. I don't think that Elijah was afraid for his life Because we will see in verse 4 that he actually pleads to God to take away his life. Those are not the words of someone wanting to avoid death. And as we will soon see, none of Elijah's complaints revolve around him trying to save his life. But they all revolve around his supposed failure of his mission. Elijah saw Jezebel's unrepentance, and this is intimately tied together with his sense of failure. And the last reason I don't think it was that he was afraid is because Elijah boldly stood against King Ahab and 450 prophets of Baal without any fear. So it seems strange that he would all of a sudden fear Jezebel. So Elijah saw that Jezebel was unrepentant and enraged. So he did what he had done for the last three years. He left Israel. But this time, he went further than he had ever gone before. Elijah flees the entire length of the divided kingdom. From the heart of the north, the Jezreel Valley in Israel, to the extreme southern border off the southern kingdom of Judah. One commentator said, since this entire journey has taken only five words, we are left a bit breathless. Elijah's like Jonah. He went as far from his assigned nation as possible. He doesn't, but he doesn't just stop there. He proceeds to abandon every attachment that he had. He abandoned Israel to enter into the southern kingdom of Judah, but then he abandoned the settled land of Judah to enter into the wilderness, and then he abandoned all human companionship, including his servant, to journey on in complete solitude until he reached the broom tree, which even the broom tree emphasizes his isolation, for it literally says he sat down under one broom tree or a solitary tree. And this is where we see his despair. He sat down under this solitary shrub and he prayed that he might die. Well, why does he pray such a prayer? He goes on to say, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. He had thought that he would be different, that he would do what none of the prophets before him could do, that he would turn Israel back to God. But when Jezebel refused to repent and he found himself back in the wilderness again, he realized 
he had failed to remove the heart of stone and to give them hearts of flesh. He had been like every prophet before him. And to some degree, he was right. It was prophets like Elijah that Stephen, the first martyr of the church, said, Which of the prophets did your fathers fail to persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, and now you are his betrayers and murderers. You see, Elijah would not put an end to Israel's unfaithfulness, and he would not be the last prophet to be persecuted. For even our own Lord Jesus himself was killed. Elijah had considered himself to be a failure at his one mission in life, and so he prayed to die. And here the gravity of his prayer. He was praying to quit his office as prophet, to give up on Israel. He thought that if he couldn't bring Israel back, no one could. He wanted to die and bring the hopes of Israel down with him. And so he lied down and slept under the broom tree. Now, given the context of his prayer, we are meant to take Elijah lying down as him lying down to die. He doesn't anticipate getting up again. He is going to sleep for good. But God refuses his resignation. He refuses to give up on Israel. Even though Elijah's patience has ceased, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. The Lord would not stop. He would not give up. And so he would not let Elijah throw in the towel. And therefore, suddenly, an angel touched him and told him to arise and eat. Now this should have frightened Elijah. And after all, he was in the wilderness, away from all people, and under a solitary tree when he is suddenly touched and spoken to. I don't know about you, but my wife is often startled if I speak to her when she thinks I've already left the house. How much more should Elijah be frightened by this visitor who appears to him in the middle of the desert? However, the author of 1 Kings does not present Elijah in fear, but in a state of apathy. Even an, an angel appearing out of thin air doesn't move him. Well, if we were to understand that Elijah laid down to die, then we should understand the angel's command to arise as a sort of resurrection. But here's the irony. Elijah was discouraged by Israel's stubbornness and spiritual deadness. He thought that he had resurrected them on Mount Carmel, but they have then just laid back down in their graves. But that is precisely what Elijah does. He gets up to eat and drink, and then he lies back down. 
But God did not give up on Elijah like Elijah gave up on Israel. The angel appears to Elijah a second time. And this time, we are told that it is the angel of the Lord. Now, often in the scriptures, the title angel of the Lord is used to refer to the pre-incarnate Lord, Jesus Christ. However, some commentators here try to argue that perhaps this is just an angel of the Lord rather than the angel of the Lord. And they argue that because elsewhere in scripture, when Jesus shows up as the angel of the Lord, he is feared and worshipped. But Elijah, his response is far from one of worship and reverence. Whether this is the pre-incarnate Lord or just an angel sent from God, Elijah's apathetic response is an indictment against him. Well, this time, the angel provides a purpose for arising and eating. He says, arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. Now, interestingly, the angel does not tell Elijah where he ought to travel, just that it is a great distance. Then we are told that Elijah arose, he ate, and he drank, and that meal sustained him for 40 days and 40 nights until he got to Mount Horeb, which is just another name for Mount Sinai. Now, his journey to Mount Sinai took 40 days. This was far longer than it needed to take. Deuteronomy 1-2 tells us that it took the Israelites 11 days to make that same journey. And that is including thousands of men, women, and children. Therefore, we are warranted to conclude that Elijah was wandering in the wilderness for 40 days, just as the Israelites had done for 40 years. The Israelites wandered for 40 years because they failed to believe God's word, fearing instead the giants in the land. So the 40 years of wandering was a judgment. And as Elijah spent each day wandering in the wilderness, he was reminded of Israel's sin and God's wrath upon them. But as one commentator rightly noted, That was not the only thing that the route brought to mind. Closely bound up with this journey was a testimony to the faithfulness of Yahweh. In view of the fact that the people had provoked the Lord for 40 years, it was amazing that he could be patient with them. He took no pleasure in most of them, but he still led his people and brought them to Canaan. Here, grace stands out against the backdrop of judgment and proves to be even more overwhelming than sin. With every step that the prophet took, history spoke to him of the unfaithfulness of the people of God, but even more of the faithfulness of Israel's God. Well, this is all spiritual preparation for Elijah as he prepares to meet with God at the mountain of God. So we've seen the wrath of Pharaoh. We've seen the wilderness retreat. Now let us look together at the word of the Lord at Sinai. 
Well, after 40 days of wandering through the wilderness, Elijah made it to Mount Sinai. Verse 9 tells us that he found a cave to spend the night in. It was at this time that the word of the Lord spoke to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now God asked that same question again in verse 13. And the emphasis of this question is on that little word, here. Why is Elijah on Mount Sinai? The last time the word of the Lord came to Elijah, God told him to come out of hiding, to go show himself to Ahab, and he would send rain to the land. But now, Elijah was in hiding again, far from Israel. What was he doing here at Mount Sinai when he was supposed to be in Israel? Well, the Lord asked Elijah this question twice, and Elijah gave the same exact answer. He said, verse 10, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. You see, Elijah sees himself as the last faithful Israelite alive. It seems like he had forgotten the national repentance of the people of God on Mount Carmel. He also seems to have forgotten the hundred prophets of the Lord that Obadiah had hidden in a cave. Or perhaps he did not view them as faithful prophets because they were hiding in a cave rather than calling Israel to repentance. Although, ironically, Elijah too is a prophet hidden in a cave. Or perhaps he assumed Jezebel had killed the prophets already. Either way, Elijah is convinced that he is the last faithful Israelite. And as the last faithful Israelite, he comes to the Lord to prosecute Israel. They had forsaken God's covenant. They had torn down God's altars. And now they had killed all the Lord's prophets besides himself. Israel was a lost cause, a failed experiment worthy of God's harshest wrath. Well, Elijah's harsh accusations are sharply contrasted with Moses' intercession on that very same mountain. Remember just centuries before this time when Moses had received God's covenant law and he came down from the mountain only to find that Israel had already broken God's covenant by worshiping a golden calf? What did Moses do? was one commentator so eloquently said, Mount Horeb had heard the two great office bearers of the old covenant speak, each time with a guilty, sinful people standing in the background. First, Horeb heard Moses' plea for grace without justice. Then, centuries later, Elijah appeared, with his indictment demanding grace, justice without grace. But how many of you know that we cannot ultimately be saved by grace without justice or justice without grace? This brings us 
to another mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration, where both Moses and Elijah would speak to the one who would save us with grace through justice. Luke 9.31 tells us that they spoke of his departure that he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That is, his crucifixion. It is there where justice and grace perfectly meet. At Golgotha, the justice of God that Elijah demanded to be poured out on Israel fell upon the only faithful Israelite, Jesus Christ. Here, God's wrath was perfectly satisfied. And at Golgotha, the grace of God that Moses pleaded to be given to Israel was accomplished for all spiritual Israel because of the merits of Christ were credited to them. As one person memorably said, where Elijah stops, Christ continues. Elijah stopped with Israel's sin, but praise be to God that Christ did not stop there. Jesus Christ continues. He prays not for your damnation, but for your salvation. Behold, the great intercessor, the only faithful Israelite, the Lord himself, Jesus Christ, he has come to take your sin and make you right with God. But as we have said, Elijah stops short of Jesus Christ. He seeks to condemn Israel, seeing himself as the only faithful Israelite. And so, the Lord tells him to come out of his cave and to stand before God. Well, this is a reference to Elijah's prophetic office. He's often told to, he often introduces himself as the one who stands before the Lord. So he comes out, and then the Lord passed by. That word passed by is the very same word used when God showed his glory to Moses. Now the Lord would reveal his glory to Elijah just as he had done for his forefather. Well, we now see this awesome and terrifying scene that is often typical of God's appearing. A great and strong wind an earthquake, and a fire. But after each of those, we get this strange phrase, but the Lord was not in the wind, earthquake, or fire. What should we make of this? Well, I think it is best to understand this when we understand how ancient kings would enter into cities. In the ancient world, the king would be preceded by a parade of people, There would be cannons of fire and cavalrymen, mounted police officers, and high officials. The purpose of this parade was to announce the coming of the king with pomp and circumstance. And this would climax when the king himself entered into one's humble abode. Well, likewise, the terrifying wind, earthquake, and fire were the parade that went before the Lord, announcing the splendor and greatness of the coming king. In that way, God was not in the wind. He was not in the earthquake and fire. He came after them. But that leads us to ask the question, 
if a mighty wind, earthquake, and fire are just the prelude, what would the actual coming of God be like? How will Elijah stand before that mighty God? Well, God did not come in a wind, an earthquake, or a fire, but he came in a still, small voice. Hear this, people of God, for we are all so tempted to want the light shows and the fog machines. We want an experience that wows us. But in the case of Elijah, God did not identify himself with the pomp and the circumstance, with the signs and the wonders, but with his word. God came through his word, his unassuming word. This is what Elijah had lost sight of. His eyes were on Jezebel. His mind was on Israel's sin. But God brings him back to his word. Here is the antidote to your despair. God's unfailing word. You may feel like the world is too far gone, but God has revealed in his word that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. You may feel that you have failed to do what God has called you to do, but God has revealed in his word that Jesus has in fact succeeded where you have failed. You may feel like you're the only one left standing for God. But God's word has revealed that he has preserved a remnant of faithful believers for himself. If you are in despair today, I plead with you, take your eyes off yourself, off your circumstances, and put them upon God's unfailing word. But Elijah does not understand this lesson, for God asks him the same question, Elijah, what are you doing here? And he gave him the same response. But although Elijah doesn't understand God's word, he understands that it is holy. For when God speaks in that still small voice, he wraps his face in a mantle. This was like Moses hiding himself behind a rock as God's glory passed by. Or Moses covering his face because it was glowing after being with God. But still not understanding what God means, this time the Lord spells it out. Go, return. Only this time, the Lord gives him three additional instructions. He's to anoint Hazael as king over Syria, to anoint Jehu as king over Israel, and to anoint Elisha as prophet in his place. By commanding Elijah to anoint Hazael, he is showing that he is Lord even over the world outside of Israel. By commanding Elijah to anoint Jehu, he is declaring that he is bringing down Ahab's house. Ahab had a chance to repent at Carmel, but since his house is still unrepentant, he will be brought down and the Lord will raise up another in his place. The Lord is overthrowing Pharaoh. And lastly, the Lord identifies Elijah's replacement in Elisha. Here, Elijah sees that the hope of Israel does not fall squarely on his shoulders alone. For God can easily raise up another after him. It is the Lord who saves, 
not Elijah. And to Elijah's claim that he was the only one left, God says, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth who has not kissed him. Elijah is not the only one left, for just as God had kept Elijah, he has kept many more. Well, we have seen the wrath of Pharaoh, the wilderness retreat, and the word of God at Sinai. Now let us quickly look at our last point. The work of God continues in Israel. Well, it appears that after the Lord spoke to Elijah plainly, he finally understood. Therefore, our text says, So he departed from there and found Elijah, the son of Shaphat. Elijah then passed by him. Now that is the same word used to describe of God passing by Elijah. Elijah then throws his mantle upon Elisha. This is the same mantle that was used to wrap his face when God was speaking. Now this may all seem like deja vu, but it's all very intentional. Just as God had recommissioned Elijah to be to his prophetic post, so now Elijah is calling Elisha to come follow him. And Elisha clearly understood what this gesture meant. For he asks if he could kiss his father and his mother goodbye before he followed Elijah. To which Elijah responds with what may seem harsh at first. He says, go back again, for what have I done to you? But even this, if we're really paying attention, sounds a little bit like deja vu. For God had told Elijah to go, return. And now Elijah is telling Elisha, Go back again. It's the same words in Hebrew. So again, this is Elijah's way of extending his prophetic call to another. Elisha will be the replacement. What the Lord has commanded Elijah is now Elisha's burden to carry. Well, Elisha then went back and slaughtered an, a yoke of ox. And that word for slaughtered is usually used in the context of a religious sacrifice. So it appears that Elisha is cutting ties with his old life and having a feast with religious significance to celebrate his call with his family. He then arose, followed Elijah, and became his servant. Elisha would carry on the work of the Lord. He would eventually anoint Jehu and take down Ahab's house. Well, this story, it all tells us that despite Elijah's despair, the work of the Lord carried on. But don't get me wrong, Elijah was halfway right in his reason for despair. For God's work does depend on one person's faithfulness. But it was not the faithfulness of Elijah. God's work depends upon his own faithfulness to keep his word, which ultimately peaked in his own son, climbing up another mountain, satisfying God's justice and achieving his grace. What Elijah could not do, namely give new hearts to spiritually dead Israelites, God has done. 
For Elijah came speaking to a people with ears but who did not hear and with eyes but did not see. But Jesus came to open the eyes of the blind, to set captives free, and to raise the dead. Now you might think Elijah's ministry was a failure, but I do not. I think that despite his own weaknesses and his own despair, he pointed to the one true God who alone deserves our worship. Jezebel's unrepentance only shows that signs and wonders will not convince hardened hearts. Only God's spirit can soften our hearts. And he does that through his word, through the word of the gospel by the Holy Spirit. So let us continue to faithfully hear God's word, to proclaim it, trusting that God's spirit is working in our midst. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your unfailing word that testifies to us about Jesus Christ, our beloved Savior. Help us to be faithful hearers of your word and that by hearing we might believe and that by believing we might be saved. Keep us from despair and give us eyes to see your spirit at work. We pray. Amen.